Sometimes we recognize last week that life does happen. And because it does happen, sometimes priorities get changed. And we talked about that last week and emphasized how we need to have priority to be number one, to be Jesus. That was our message last week. But as a bit of a follow-up to that, today we have a message pertaining to how we can stay alive. Or if we're somehow becoming stagnant or complacent in our faith, then we can be revived. So today's message focuses upon a little bit of a follow-up, if you will, to last week's priority of today of how we can take our dead bones and become alive again. So today we turn to Ezekiel in chapter 37. And I start with the question. The question is this. Should the Bible be taken literally or symbolic? It's just a question to begin to think about. But that's the type of question that was asked to one of the preachers I like to listen to occasionally, Adrian Rogers. Many years ago, Adrian was asked this particular question. He said, Pastor, is the Holy Bible God's word? Is it literal or symbolic? And Rogers answered, yes. Meaning that there is times it is both literal and symbolic. In the account we read today, then known as the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37, is an example of how it can be literal and have a symbolic interpretation. Again, the verses relate to the dry bones and its most memorable passages of the book of Ezekiel. It's full of imagery and great significance. And we have that to look at today as we dissect it and begin to apply it. So we're going to read today the first 14 verses of Ezekiel 37. Stand with me today as we do so to simply honor the reading of the word. Ezekiel chapter 37. In verse 1 says this, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out into the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Well, then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath and breathe on the slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you to the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves. 
and raise you from the graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I'll place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord. Father, Lord, we come before you this morning, Lord, just praising you and thanking you for all the blessings that we mentioned earlier that can happen in our life. Lord, we recognize that we always mention here that our best blessings are Son Jesus. Today, Lord, we ask, we beg your Spirit, Lord, to lead and to guide and to direct us today in this time of message. We pray, Lord, that as we have this Old Testament account pertaining to the bones, that we understand how that account could even apply to us in our lives we're living today. So, Lord, let us have our heart and our ears and our, to be attentive to what you want to show us today. And let's be thankful for what shall happen here today, Lord. We love you, we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, as I mentioned earlier, the dry bones, which is what this count really is kind of titled, is one of the most popular passages from Ezekiel. And as we read it then and understand as we what we've read, it really begs for some explanation. So we should note first that the entirety of chapter 37 vividly illustrates the promise that was given by God to his people, particularly Ezekiel, in chapter 36. In chapter 36, God announces that Israel will be restored to their land and resume the kind of leadership that they have so desperately been missing under what the beloved king of David. Now, David's not coming back, but the leadership will be similar to what they had before with the beloved king David. We don't have time to capture everything that's really written within chapter 36 of God's blessing he wants to give to Israel and to the people again. But a couple of verses are noteworthy to be able to give us a flavor. So in chapter 36, we find in verse 24, the Lord says to Ezekiel in reference to Israel, he says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. In verses 28 and 29 of chapter 36, he said, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. Now, as the Israelites then begin to hear this, this, no doubt, for them sounds great. I mean, it sounds terrific. I mean, how can it not? In their situation, they have been removed from their home for quite some time. But the idea of restoration for them seems highly unlikely especially in light of their present condition. Because Israel, as you've seen through the text, is kind of pronounced as dead as a nation. They're being deprived of their land in which they want to live in. They've been deprived of their king and of their temple. Now, truth be told, they brought all this calamity upon themselves. As a nation and a people, they have been sinning quite greatly for some time, even gravely to the point where they kept worshiping false idols over and over again. Now, they knew better than to do that. The nation knew to keep the commandments and, of course, to honor God. But they simply would not listen. They simply would not do and to be obedient. So, subsequently, because of this obedience, the land in which they were living had been divided and conquered. It was first conquered by the Assyrians, as they marched into the northern kingdom of Israel. Later on, the southern kingdom of Judah was conquered as well as the Babylonians or the Chaldeans captured it. So the nation, the people of Israel, had been divided and dispersed for so long 
for so long that they think any kind of unification, any kind of restoration, just seems impossible. So God then gives Ezekiel two particular signs. One we've read in chapter 37 and verses 1 through 14, known as the Valley of Dry Bones, is one particular sign of the promise that he will deliver. And the other is later in this chapter, in verses 15 to 28, you might read it later, it's just as wonderful as one we read, called the two sticks. But we've read the first for application. So let's return to the applications, return to the, the, the text, and begin to make some notes. Because notably, as you go back to the text in chapter 37, verse 1, you find that Ezekiel is in a vision. Notice the wording, which says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord. That's just fancy wording, if you will, for how Ezekiel is now in a vision to receive what the Lord wants to show him. He's taken up in a vision, set into a valley of dry bones, and makes some observations. By the way, some people try their best to try to figure out where is this valley that is talked about in Ezekiel 37. It's been lots of time trying to figure out where is the valley. I want to suggest to you if it's a vision, it's a fruitless effort. He is in a vision receiving the word. So as he receives the word placed in the valley through the vision, he looks around and sees an incredible amount of bones. Dry, dead bones. Now, for some people, I recognize that being placed around dead, dry bones will be completely scary and very uncomfortable. I mean, they may be thinking about zombies or The Walking Dead. I never liked that show. I never really seen the first episode, but I would see the previews. That's enough for me. So to be comfortable, uh, uncomfortable or scary thinking to be around a bunch of dry, dead bones. But that's not Ezekiel's situation. I mean, he's not going to have any zombies come towards him. He's not going to all of a sudden land in the episode of The Walking Dead. But rather what Ezekiel is happening to him is he's placed here in this vision to begin to make an observation. To, an observation to look upon all the dry bones. And notice how verse 2 says there were many, not just a couple laying around, there were many dry bones in this valley. And it's quite possible they were bones of men who had once been soldiers, lying around, well, lifeless, like bones do, right? And they were very dry, giving evidence that the bones, a lot of bones collected together, very dry, giving evidence that it just didn't happen overnight. They had been there for quite some time. They have been dead for a very long time. So why Ezekiel is looking around then to the in supply of bones, very dry bones, notice in verse 3 how God asked him a question. And he said to me, son of man. By the way, the reference to son of man is just what God calls Ezekiel. We know the son of man is written in the New Testament to be our Lord, is what Jesus sometimes called himself the son of man. But Jesus was fully man and fully God. Ezekiel is not. It's just another reference to how God speaks to Ezekiel, the son of man. So he says, son of man, Ezekiel, essentially. Can these bones live? Look at the way Ezekiel answered. He answers and said, oh, Lord God, you know. I mean, put yourself in Ezekiel's place now. 
I mean, you're in a vision. You're in a situation where he is. You're in this valley of dry bones. You see all these bones everywhere. And the Lord comes upon you in this vision, and he asks you, can these bones live? I mean, how would you respond? I mean, never a truer statement has ever been expressed. God, truly, you do know. I mean, it's one of God's distinguishing characteristics. is omniscience of how he is all-knowing. You don't take God by surprise of anything. God knows precisely what has happened in all of our lives. He knew the situation unfolding in the vision he has placed Ezekiel, but he asked him the question, Ezekiel answers appropriately. Oh, Lord God, you know. But think about the question if you were asked. I mean, from a human's point of view, from our standpoint, if we're asked the question, if we're looking at this valley of dry bones, and we ask if they can live, our answer is going to be no, absolutely not. But we're not God. And, and when, when God asks the question, God has the ability, God has the power, he's not limited to any human point of view or dimension. Now, from the divine point of view, God can do it because everything is possible with God, which reveals our first point. I mean, I just said it. You probably said it yourself before. That all things are possible with God. Everything is possible with God. I mean, Matthew records in the 19th chapter of his gospel an account pertaining to the rich young ruler who is seeking the kingdom. He comes up to our Lord, begins to ask the question about how he can seek the kingdom, and they have this conversation that goes back and forth for a while in the 19th chapter. But basically, our Lord tells him he needs to sell all that he has and give to the poor. Well, the rich young ruler kind of just bows his head in shame and leave because he's not willing to do so. And then Jesus expresses this statement. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Well, that perplexes his disciples greatly. So he tells them this then. With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. But it's maybe the best account of how all things are possible with God, arguably the best account in my estimation, is in Luke, in chapter 1. It happens to be in Luke chapter 1, the birth of our Lord. And it happens that Gabriel, the angel, comes to visit Mary. He visits Mary and says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You should call his name Jesus. We pick up the story in verse 32 of Luke 1. He will be called great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Well, Mary hears this and she says to Gabriel, Well, how will this be since I am a virgin? And then Gabriel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And he adds, Behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. And then you find in verse 37, For nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. Think about all the different things you can think of that mankind may think is impossible, and nothing is impossible with God. That God can part the sea for Moses to escape safely. 
He can cause Mary to have a child miraculously. He can cause Elizabeth, who was barren for so many years, to conceive a child. The record tells us that a leper can be healed from leprosy. A blind man can see. A a lame man can walk. Lazarus can be raised from the dead. Nothing is impossible with God. He can cause dry, dead bones to come to life because nothing is impossible with God. So God asks Ezekiel a question. Can these dry bones live? I think Ezekiel gives him the best possible answer you can possibly give to someone, especially if it's God asking you a question about something you think is impossible. He says, God, truly you know. And he's exactly right. Because God does know and God can do it. Because all things are possible with God. So as that point is made and as this truth is conveyed, we go back to the text and look at verse 4. Because notice after the question, Ezekiel answers rather astonishingly, everything is possible with God, yeah, God, you know. Then comes a command. He said to me, God said to Ezekiel, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And we stop here because there's something really powerful here that we cannot miss, that we should not miss. What does God command Ezekiel to say to the bones? He tells Ezekiel to say to the bones simply, Hear the word of the Lord. That's all he tells him so far. Hear the word. Speak to these bones and say, hear the word of the Lord. And this then leads to a second point, that there is power in the word of God. There is power in the word. In the life of Ezekiel, if you take a moment to read through the prophets of Ezekiel, you're going to find this is not the first time he's prophesied to something like a a, a, a or forest, or, or to a mountain, or, or of anything. I mean, to buy bones. I mean, he has spoke twice to the mountains in chapter 6 and verse 36. He has spoke to the forest in chapter 20, prophesying. And now he's told to prophesy to dry bones and to tell them the word of the Lord. Because there's power in the word. Concerning the power, the author of Hebrews knew precisely how to express the power in the word. He says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and the spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's precisely what the Word of God is. Very powerful. But the author of Hebrews is the only place you find written about the power in the Word. First Peter Peter in his first epistle states the Word not only has life but imparts it. John in his gospel says, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. There is power in the word of God. But arguably, perhaps Paul expressed the best truth in reference to the word, especially when it comes to the gospel. In Romans chapter 10, verse 14, it says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear about someone preaching with someone conveying the word, the gospel? Meaning there is power in the word of God. So Ezekiel then is commanded 
Simply after his vision, after he recognizes that the Lord can do all things, he is commanded to prophesy to the bones a very important expression, hear the word of the Lord. They just tell him, he's going to say, hear the word of the Lord. Then he's going to follow up with more. We're going to tell them, hear the word of the Lord, which is what? Let's go back to verse 5 and 6 and find out. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. They're dry, dead bones. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ezekiel believed the promise, and then obeyed the command. And the bones came together. The skeletons were covered with flesh and skin. So there was lying around the valley, looking like a sleeping army. I mean, can you imagine seeing something like this unfold in front of you? These dry, dead bones, been there for years, scattered about, coming together, all of a sudden, sinew and flesh, and just lying around them. Just lying around, like a sleeping army. If you will, the bodies only lacked one thing. The one thing that lacked was life. Let's stop there for a moment. Because it presents a wonderful application we must have this morning. Let's recognize now the valley of dry bones speaks of the spiritual condition of Israel. Remember, they're divided, they're conquered, and they're in a very weak spiritual condition. So if we take anything pertaining to what that account tells us and begin to apply it to our lives, if we are to learn anything from this, we have to see it also speaks of our nation and of our people. Work with me for a moment. Do we recognize our spiritual condition in our country? Do we see people as God sees people? Can we see the true spiritual condition of America? The great land in which we're living? I mean, truth be told, if we begin to open our eyes and look around, we see what God sees. That our country, our people, is really like a valley of dry bones. Becoming very stagnant, very complacent in faith. Having weak faith, like this people of Israel, very spiritually weak, if any faith at all. I mean, in the text, God calls a prophet, Ezekiel, to pass back and forth among the bones. To observe walking around, looking at these bones. And if we apply that to our lives every day, we're walking about in shops and streets and businesses and schools, wherever we go, in our towns and cities, we see all this happening unfolding right in front of us. These dry, dead bones. I mean, do we see it? Do we see the weakened condition that we're living in? Do we even begin to feel the situation unfolding? Because it's not the first time it's happened. Jesus felt the condition. And he began to weep over Jerusalem. Paul felt it, sensed it. And his heart's desire and prayer was his nation that they would come and be saved. So how about us? As Christians and believers, everywhere we go, are we seeing this? Are we sensing it? Do we see dead bones around us? Not literally, of course, but figuratively and symbolically. The dead bones of lost souls are around us. 
Let me just ask you this question. Have you prayed for an awakening? Have you prayed for spiritual thunder, a revival? Are we praying for such? I'm as guilty maybe as any of us. We don't pray that a lot here at Crossroads, to pray for revival, for a great awakening. But don't we need it? We all need an awakening. Because sometimes even in our lives, again, we talked about how priorities last week can change. And even in our lives, if we're not careful, we, because life does happen and it gets busy, we can become stagnant. We can become complacent. So we need to be praying for our country, for our people, for even ourselves, for an awakening, for a spiritual thunder. Dr. David Jeremiah once expressed in a message about spiritual awakenings and great revivals from the years past, he actually expressed it this way. I'm tired of hearing and reading about them. I want to experience one. Should we want to experience one? We should. And we start with self. For us to stay alive and to be revived. I mean, in the account, the dry bones may have been the army of soldiers in a sense, but it's a dead army. I mean, it's a nation of people with absolutely no spiritual life. If you just see people lying around like he, Ezekiel seeing these dry bones come together with no spirit, no life in them, and it's just a bunch of corpses laying there, empty body shells. To recognize that the dead bones represent the people's spiritual condition, and it's not just Israel, it can be all of us in our spiritual condition. Listen, we had a message for several weeks about the seven letters, the seven churches of Revelation. One church was dead, spiritually dead. Do you remember which one was pronounced as dead? It was Sardis. Jesus tells the church of Sardis, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Dead. Not maybe as in physically dead, right, but spiritually dead. I don't want any church, anybody, any of us ever to be pronounced spiritually dead. I want us to be revived. I want us to stay alive. So now, having said that, let's take the message to the point where how can we then, if we're having a period of complacency or we're having some stagnation and we're not growing spiritually, how can we begin to grow? How can we be alive? How can we revive? Well, there's four things for us to review today that helps us become revived and alive. And here's the first. Become compelled. Paul writes to Corinthians, his second letter, for the love of Christ compels us. There it is. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. We shouldn't be living for ourselves. We should be living for him who took our place upon the cross. So a simple way maybe to remember this first particular point to be alive and revived, to keep that way, is to simply remember the cross and be thankful for the cross. I mean, be compelled as in, you know, be moved by the Spirit. Allow yourself to be moved by the Spirit. Fully surrender to Christ. Remember the sacrifice that was done for you and for me, for all mankind. So one way is to become compelled. A second is to become compassionate. Matthew's Gospel speaks in chapter 9. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, 
and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitude, when he saw the people, right, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out the laborers into his harvest. Notice how Jesus was moved with compassion when he saw the dead bones. When he saw the lost souls, he was moved with compassion. And so should we. I once heard a pastor say, and you pray this, you better be careful that you pray it. God, break my heart for what breaks yours. Because God will do it. But when you pray that prayer, God, break my heart for what breaks yours, he will enter in your life compassion. Compassion for people. Compassion particularly for people who are going to hell because they've never received Christ Jesus. Have compassion for the lost souls around you that can help revive you and keep you alive. But also, thirdly, then build conviction. John 15, 8. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you'll be my holy disciples. I mean, as we mentioned last week, and I've kind of already reiterated a little bit this morning, it might just be that we have to rearrange some priorities. Build some conviction upon your life and your heart. Someone define conviction, as you see behind me, when you decide to change your heart, desires, and actions to match what God values over your emotions. Become convicted. So three things rather quickly, not a lot of elaboration, but three things rather quickly can maybe place into our lives to help us remain alive or to maybe be revived from the condition that we're in is to become compelled, become compassionate, and build or become convicted. But yet there's one more. And to find the fourth thing, we've got to go back to the text. So let's go back and look at verse 7. Ezekiel's have all these things happen in his vision. And he says in verse 7, So I prophesied and I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. The bones came together, bone to his bone. I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them. Flesh had come upon them. Skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Verse 7 and 8 tells us what happens when Ezekiel begins to spread the word to these lifeless bones. You see the sound. There's a sound happening, a rattling. Bones come together. Then there's sinews on them. Then there's some flesh and some skin. But there was no breath in them. So he goes further in verse 9. He brings the bones to real life. He said, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man. Say to the breath, thus says the Lord God. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So he, com- he, he did. I prophesied as he commanded, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet. They're no longer lying around. They got all the skin, the sinews coming together, all the bones that formed a body, but they're no longer lying there. He breathes life into them, and they come to stand. The breath of life has not come upon these dry bones. But notice that they stood erect, but they're still lifeless. Work with me. They're still lifeless. They come and they're still lifeless until the breath is being given to them. They're like a shell, a body without a soul, if you will. 
But the spirit was breathed into the lifeless bodies and brought them to the fullness of life. The Hebrew word here is rudolph, meaning breath, spirit, and wind, used repetitiously in the Old Testament. We see multiple words being used here in English, breath, wind, spirit, but in the Hebrew, it's just one word, rudolph, meaning they finally received life. In verse 14, the same word used once more. Our English changes it, but it's pronounced correctly. I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. That's exactly what happened to these dry bones. They were formed together. They stood erect. They had the breath of life come upon them. They had a spirit to enter the life. The spirit entered these lifeless, dead bodies. And now, if you will, they are as real as you and me. They're full of life, breathed in by the spirit of life upon them. So what does that mean? It means the fourth and final way of becoming alive is this. Besides becoming compelled, compassionate, convicted, we must be filled with the spirit of life. To have the breath of life, the spirit. To have, listen to me, to have the breath of life, to have the spirit within us, means we have to be reborn. It's how Jesus told Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to them, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher. And you come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. But Jesus answered Nicodemus in John 3, 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I mean, Nicodemus was a prestigious Pharisee. Moms would see little boys going down the street, you know, and all the little Johnny right there with them. And they say, hey, Johnny, when you grow up, I want you to be just like Nicodemus. He's a prestigious Pharisee. You need to be just like him. He was prestigious. Everybody wanted to be like Nicodemus. But one night he decided he needed to know more. So he went out of dark and he sought out Jesus to ask how it was possible that Jesus could do all the signs and wonders. That's what it looks like. But Jesus knew is a leading question. Jesus knows all. Jesus was aware that Nicodemus was a man on the edge of curiosity. But he also knew that Nicodemus was a man without the breath of life being breathed in him. He was a corpse. He was a soul. He needed the spirit. He was a man who was lifeless. He was a man who needed to become alive. Essentially, he was a body. He was a shell. Nicodemus is not much unlike these valley dry bones. He was a lost soul in the world. Lost completely, totally spiritually. So he sought out Jesus. And Jesus told him precisely what he needed to know. He must be reborn in order in the kingdom of God. How can we actually become revived and stay alive? It can't happen until we had the spirit of life breathed within us and come to accept Jesus as the Lord. The overall arching point this morning really is this, that we have to avoid becoming dry bones and dead bones spiritually. And last week we emphasized priorities. This week, in a bit of a follow-up, we focus upon being revived. 
because I recognize in all of our lives, like we have sometimes life happens, you mentioned last week, the priorities can be suddenly changed. But also recognize in life it's easy, so easy, to become complacent in our faith. We just take it for granted. It's nothing special anymore. It just becomes stagnant. And we just stop growing. But that can't be us. We need to continue to grow and to learn and mature and to spread the word and to stay alive or to be revived. So today we simply concentrate on how we can continue to do that. And the remedy has been given to us as we look into what's happened to Ezekiel. We must have all these things to come together for us. We must be compelled, be compassionate, become convicted, and certainly we must have the breath of life to enter us, the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit comes upon you the day you accept Jesus Christ as Lord. And that's when you're fully alive, Father. Lord, we thank you today for this message. We thank you, Lord, for how it can speak to us in whatever spiritual condition we're in this morning. Lord, as we mentioned last week, things do happen in our lives. And sometimes life gets busy, sometimes life gets messy. Sometimes we just need these kind of reminders to help us to keep our priorities right and to keep us growing in our faith. Lord, in fact, we should recognize we should never stop growing. In fact, once we maybe think that we know it all or have experienced it all, we should recognize, Lord, it's a very dangerous condition to be in. So, Lord, today as we come together to receive your word, I ask you to speak to us. Have your spirit to lead us and guide us and direct us right now, Lord, before we go into our time of reflection. I pray, Lord, for all of us to recognize what condition we're in spiritually right now. And if, Lord, be one change we need to make today, let us make it today. Let us be alive. Let us recognize that you give us life. Let's be thankful for that life you give us. We love you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.